I woke up early on Saturday morning and my wife asked me, as she is wont to do, um, how'd you sleep? And I said, terrible. Actually, I slept badly. I had an awful dream last night. She said, well, what was the dream? I said, well, I was scheduled to do a wedding. And I ran into all kinds of traffic on the way to the wedding. And I was getting nervous because I was beginning to think I'm going to cut this close. I finally got to the property where the wedding was being held, and I couldn't find the location of the actual service. It was a huge facility. It had these, uh, this labyrinth of rooms. And I kept going from room to room to room, always hearing just beyond in the next room what sounded like the makings of a wedding about to take place. And I would try doors, and they wouldn't open, and then I would go to another room, and I was always finding this wedding eluding me. And when I finally got to the, to the place where the wedding was, uh, the service was just beginning, and I, I managed to get into position, but all of the, of the attendants of the wedding were out of order, and it was not at all what I'd planned in the booklet that I had that had the printed order of service. And as I began to look at the booklet, I couldn't make out what the reading was, and there wasn't quite enough light. And I realized it was upside down, and I turned it around, and the words were wrong. And, and I was pretty sure that the bride's name was Abby, but this text said her name was York. And I didn't know whether to say Abby or York. And I was just in a tizzy, and thankfully I woke myself up from this nightmare of a dream. Have any of you ever had a stress dream? Was that a stress dream or what? It was an indicator, I think, as I sat with it, of a number of different things going on in my life uh, where I was seeking to find my way, feeling a bit unprepared, not uh, sure that I was going to be able to do what I felt like I was called to do. The dream was a, uh, a projection, in a sense, of what was really going on in my heart and in my life. What do you do with stress? How do you handle the pressures of life that weigh so heavily upon you? My experience is that no matter where we live, how young or old we are, what our temperament may be, how successful we've been in certain areas of our life, stress over uh, the course of the events of this world is a natural part of life's journey. This is why I want to explore with you today um, two potential ways of handling this kind of stress and anxiety in our life. I want to look with you today at, at two patterns for this that are revealed in the Scripture lesson from Daniel chapter 2 today. And then I invite you to, to let me know which of these approaches to stress seems to you likely to be the one you'll seek to pursue in the days ahead. The first of these approaches I'm simply going to call the Nebuchadnezzar approach or because Nebuchadnezzar is hard to pronounce, we'll just call it the Neb approach. Uh, 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar presided over one of the greatest, most sophisticated empires that this world has ever known. We have a tendency very often to think of our own society as the latest and greatest and clearly the best kind of, of empire that has ever existed. But the truth is that, that for eons, great civilizations have been rising up and then washing away in, in, the, in the course of time. Under his 40-year reign, as the king of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon systematically conquered the entire Middle East. Uh, it moved out from its center in the middle of this area and took over everything. And Nebuchadnezzar was so successful in exercising dominance over these territories that he was able to Im impose a significant tribute and trade program that brought billions, by today's standards, trillions into the national treasury of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then took this incredible resource and, and embarked upon a massive series of amazing public works projects. 
Uh, he built uh, through an extraordinary act of engineering a, a huge bridge that spanned the mighty Euphrates River, a, a, a feat never accomplished before his time. Uh, he, he built vast fleets of ships for war and for commerce that were uh, manned by these 90-person rowing crews, these, these incredible uh, ships that cut at a ferocious speed through the seas uh, to prosecute uh, Babylon's both trade and military uh, interests. Uh, Babylon constructed under Nebuchadnezzar some 54 huge temples, scores of magnificent palaces which have now been unearthed and, and you can see them, you go online and, and look at the foundations and see the size of these incredible palaces. A and he actually constructed even the first, the world's first skyscrapers. Um, one of them, they're, they're called ziggurats. I don't know if we have a photograph. There we do. We have a picture of one of those uh, to give you some sense of these things. One of the, of the ziggurats that Nebuchadnezzar constructed was 65 stories high in an era before rebar, concrete, steel, cranes, any of the modern uh, conveniences of construction, his engineers were able to build these magnificent skyscrapers. Are you getting the picture? Are you beginning to understand that Nebuchadnezzar was no lightweight, okay? He, 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 could, he could run a country today. He could command a, a massive global corporation. He was brilliant in, in so many different ways. He ran with the stallions. He probably played the Babylonian equivalent of scratch golf. He was just an amazing figure. And yet, as the old saying goes, sometimes heavy is the head that wears the crown. And in our scripture lesson for today, we encounter this formidable figure uh, battling worries about his life, battling worries specifically about the future of his life and that of his empire. In fact, in verse 29 of Daniel chapter 2, uh, we read that as Nebuchadnezzar lay in bed one night, his mind turned to things to come. His mind was anguished over things to come. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that he was specifically thinking about. Human nature being the consistent stuff that it is, however, we can take a guess, I suppose. Uh, they were probably some of the sorts of thoughts and feelings that swirl in us when we uh, lie awake at night or have our own uh, stress dreams. Uh, how am I going to pay those bills? Uh, how, how will I ever solve those problems at work? Uh, which way should I go in this important decision? Or how do I recover from that past bad decision that I made? What should I do about this particular child or this grandchild? Uh, will I ever find true love? Will I get into the college of my choice? Will my marriage survive this desperate wilderness season? Will this illness that I have now be the beginning of the end for me? Should I put my parent, should I put myself in that uh, senior care facility? Uh, will the bears ever win again? Uh, these are the heavy things that weigh upon people in every single age. And my point, I think, is that Nebuchadnezzar was likely plagued with these kinds of concerns, ones that range from the sublime to, to the ridiculous, because all of us, it's just a, a condition of, the, of humanity, we worry about things to come. Uh, one of our young leaders, uh, Heather DeBoer, was leading our um, uh, worship service last night and she observed that we have a, a wonderful ministry uh, here at the church that helps people with anxiety and depression. And she says it's strange that these things have been stigmatized in our time because in reality it's such a common condition. Uh, dealing with sadness or dealing with anxiety is just part of what it means to be a human being. Uh, and so for Nebuchadnezzar, this was a, a serious experience. And the question comes as we look at his life is, is how do you deal with that? Uh, what do, can we learn anything from Nebuchadnezzar's approach to managing stress? Well, according to the scripture text for today, Neb had a three-point approach uh, to dealing with the anxiety in his life. 
Uh, the Bible says that in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. We get no indication from the storyline there that, that he wakes up his wife or that he uh, gets down by his bedside and kneels and prays or that he uh, opens up some literature uh, to, to uh, calm himself or, or, or uh, listens to music. Uh, apparently, Nebuchadnezzar's first response to stress is to toss and turn alone in the night. How many of us do this? How many of us go sleepless and solo? Uh, much of the time. We wrestle with worries that are too large to let us really rest, and yet somehow we feel unable to, to let somebody in on them. Uh, in fact, uh, we get up in the morning, maybe even with somebody in our bed by our side, and they say, how did you sleep? We say, oh, just uh, fine, fine, fine. We don't even tell them that it was a rough night, that, uh, that we were worrying over things. Uh, this is a common response to stress. And if you can relate to that, maybe you can also connect to the second thing that Nebuchadnezzar does. Daniel 2 and verse 2 says, So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. In other words, and presumably the next morning or day, he calls in the professional wise men of Babylon to help him sort out what's going on uh, here. And the text says, when they came in and they stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. I want to know what it means. And then comes this very bizarre exchange. Uh, because some of the wise men, and you can read the actual um, dialogue in the scripture lesson from Daniel chapter 2, but what they are saying in effect is, uh, okay, king, uh, tell us about the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And, and the king says, actually, no, you tell me what my dream was. And if you cannot tell me what my dream was, then off with your heads. And when I read, I read this at the first, I could not understand the logic of this particular decision or approach the king had here. Why doesn't he tell these guys the details of his dream. If he wants to know, he's got all these brilliant people around him. Why doesn't he tell them, let them in on? It's like going to a, uh, to a psychologist and sitting on the couch and saying, you tell me what's going on inside my mouth. I'm not going to say anything. You know, what's inside my head? It just made no sense. And then it hit me as I sat with this. I think Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe these guys have a clue what's really going on. I don't think he even trusts these people. And so I think his second response to stress is he half-heartedly seeks help from people he doesn't really trust that much. And, and, I, and I think it's for good reason. And you need to know a little bit more about the culture of Babylon to appreciate why. The Babylonians had a dream interpretation industry going. One of, the, one of the actual dimensions of Babylonian society was that dream inter interpretation was a huge deal. There were books and seminars and, and places you could go to get dreams interpreted. And, and they had codified all of the different symbols that might appear in a dream and linked each of those symbols to a whole set of possible interpretations for those symbols. And what this meant was that, that these astrologers and wise men of various kinds could listen to you tell your story, you describe your dream, and then depending on the impression they wanted to make with you, they could choose which of the interpretations to give to the particular symbols of your dream. Oh, you were wandering through a house trying to get to a wedding. I'll tell you what that means. Um... And so Nebuchadnezzar is skeptical uh, of these people. Uh, he doesn't want a horoscope. He doesn't want them to tell him what uh, they think he wants to hear. He wants the truth. What he's been disturbed about is a big deal, and he wants to know the real truth about these things. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a position of desperate longing for an authoritative understanding of your circumstances like that. 
You're dealing with worries for which some kind of a pat answer or sort of a general uh, interpretation is just not going to be enough for you. You don't want somebody to sort of dance around the subject and then just tell you what they think you already want to hear. You want to hear what's really going on. You want a message that's authentic and that's authoritative that you can act on. Even if it's a hard thing for you to hear, even if, if, if it may be painful what it is that is going on, you want to hear it. So when you ask people what's eating you, what they think about what's eating you, you may only give them sort of partial information because you think that if they were really on the ball, if they were really for you, they would understand. This happens in marriages sometimes. We expect our spouse to guess, to know what's going on inside of us. I see that you're upset. Oh, yes, I am. Why? Oh, well, you should know. <laughs> if you really love me, subtext, if you really love me, if you've been paying attention, you'd know. You would know what's going on inside of me. Um, and then when they don't really know, and we're pretty stressed out about this, we often employ the third and the final stress management technique modeled by Nebuchadnezzar here. It's called rage therapy. It's called rage therapy. The Bible says that the failure of the counselors to give him the answer he sought, I quote, made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And actually, you go back and read the story, it's worse than that. He wants their entire households wiped out too. All of them. Not just the ones in front of him, but everybody. Everybody in the wise men class. They're all going to be exterminated because they're not doing what the king wants done to help him deal with his stress. It feels good to vent a little stress on other people sometimes. Uh, who of us has not at some point in a time of anxiety sort of just blown a gasket? And, and I know that with the blade of my own words or my glare or my silent fantasies, I have chopped off more than a few heads in my time. Maybe you have. This is, again, something that we as human beings uh, often do. Um, a lot of us, I think, handle our anxiety in these ways. We toss and turn alone in the night. We, we may half-heartedly share what's going on with us with people, but not the whole story because we don't always have confidence that other people understand or will understand or can help. And then when those things don't work, we just blow off steam. We engage in a little execution therapy uh, in one way or another. How does that work for us? Uh, how, how effective is that as a means of, of helping us deal with the things that press in upon us? Um, it has not done much for me when I've done this approach. Uh, it's done less for the people around me when I've chosen this particular approach, which is why I'm really intrigued by the alternative way at coming with at this whole stress issue that gets modeled in this story by uh, God's prophet Daniel here. Um, would you like to know what Daniel's approach to stress management is? I, would you? Good. I, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> if you think about it, Daniel also knew a lot about stress. Now, he was not the senior leader that Nebuchadnezzar was, but he had experienced in his young life a great deal of pressure and anxiety. As you remember from last week's uh, discussion in Daniel chapter 1, we learn how Daniel is taken away from his home. His, his country is invaded by the armies of Babylon. He has uh, essentially watched people around him that he loved slaughtered. He's seen the community he raised, uh, was raised in uh, burned and destroyed and pillaged. Uh, he's been marched in a slave train hundreds of miles to an alien country. He's been uh, put into their indoctrination program. Uh, they are, uh, they've given him a new name. They're not even calling him by his familiar name anymore. They're calling him Belteshazzar now. Instead of Daniel, they're using a, pag a pagan god's name uh, as his name. Uh, Daniel is, is, is a trainee now in the king's wise men corps. So what does that mean for Daniel at this particular moment? 
It means that he has a death sentence on him. He has made the cut list, as they say, because he's part of this class of wise people that the king has decided now need to be exterminated because they're useless in his time of need. That would be stress, right? Alien land, you're a slave, you, you, you hardly know anybody in this place, and now you discover your, your head's uh, about to roll. Um, so, so what does Daniel do with this? What does he, how does he manage these circumstances and these intense feelings? Well, first the Bible says, Daniel went to, and I quote, Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, and he asked... Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Why did he issue this really harsh decree? In other words, instead of tossing and turning alone about this circumstance, instead of just wigging out on the news that he'd, he'd, he'd received this death sentence, Daniel deliberately seeks out one seasoned person to help him identify the specific source of the problem that's leading to the stress, okay? He finds one, uh, and Arioch is a commander, he's a seasoned person, to help him identify what's going on. He understands, I think this is what Daniel gets, is that there is no saving solution till you've narrowed down and named the particular problem. Until you've taken this, this, this wild worry cloud that gets you frantic and you've boiled it down to the, to the core issue that's lying underneath all of these feelings I'm having, it's very hard to fix things. And sometimes you can't do this alone. Sometimes you need a, a seasoned wise person to help you sort it out. Um, I turned to my wife, Amy, that morning to kind of get some processing and, and to help me figure out, why, why am I having this stress dream? And she asked me questions that helped me kind of boil it down to some of the things, core things going on in my life. Um, are you in the habit of doing that? Uh, of, of, of going to someone you can trust and, and, and seeking help and identifying the key thing amidst the cloud of worries? Secondly, you'll notice that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel um, didn't sort of half-heartedly talk to people that he really didn't trust. On the contrary, the Bible says that then Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter. And the, sen the sense you get in this text is he, un he let it all out. He, he walked through all the details. Uh, he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In other words, he actively shares the particular problem. Here's the problem, guys. <laughs> here's, the, here's what I figured out. Uh, the king, the king uh, has gone berserk because that's what the personality of this guy does when he has uncertainty in front of him. Um, and he goes and shares this particular problem with these friends in the, in the, in the faith. He goes to his small group. He goes to his, his, his fellowship. He goes to his stretcher bearers, and he pours out his heart. Do you have a circle like that? Do you have a, a circle of confidants like that that you could tell anything to? You could share really bad news with and your feelings about that bad news. Uh, can we help you find a circle like that or start a circle like that in, in the life of our church family? This, is, this kind of a circle is critical in, in living through the, our stressful times. Um, thirdly, Daniel asked his friends to pray with him about the problem. Uh, he, he specifically said, um, let's go to God with this situation. And you may recall that, that uh, if you read through Daniel chapter 2 prior to this um, discussion this morning, that, uh, that when the king uh, issued this instruction to them that they should tell him what his dream was, that the, the Babylonian wise men in a, in a, in a huff say, well, 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 come on, not a man on earth can do what you're asking for, king. Uh, only the gods, they say, could possibly help in this circumstance, but the gods do not live among men. And Daniel knows that they're wrong on both of those counts. 
You see, although Daniel lived 600 years before God literally did come to live among men in the person of Jesus Christ, Daniel nonetheless already understands that the one true God actually does care deeply and intimately about human worries and and the details of human life. And moved by that care, God does offer to human beings transcendent capacities to conquer the sources of worry and anxiety in our lives. He, He is eager to do that to those who, who seek him and, and pray to him. God can renew that relationship that seems to be in such disarray right now in your life. God can open doors that are apparently closed to you today. Uh, God can give you the piercing insight that you need to unravel that particular problem. He can restore your flagging strength when it seems to be gone. God wants to do these things. The scriptures are are full of assurances of God's desire to provide this kind of shepherding assistance to his people. But the conduit through which he so often pours these solutions, pours this power, the conduit, the the door in the labyrinth that needs to open is is the portal of prayer. Uh, Are you in the habit of bringing before God the deep stresses and the problems and the concerns of your life. I quote the scriptures again. Daniel urged them, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then having committed himself to that particular purpose, fourthly, Daniel trusted God to act. He prayed and then he went to sleep. He prayed and he went to bed. And there's a contrast in the storyline here between the sleeplessness of Nebuchadnezzar and the trusting rest of Daniel here that we're meant to to notice, I think. Uh, Sometimes I think God uh, wants us to do everything we know how to do and then let go. Uh, There are times when I know when he wants us to be active. When he says, don't just stand there, do something. But there are times when God's message to us is, don't just do something, stand there. Or better yet, go to bed. Sleep on this. Trust me. Trust my sovereignty. Uh, and watch what I can do. And I think sometimes God has to say this to us, or remind us of this, because we do take on more uh, of the weight of things than is appropriate. And we forget that, that there are things that only God can do to change that person's heart, to alter those circumstances, to, un, uh, to unleash those resources um, in a way that we can't compel by our action alone. Uh, sometimes God waits for us to let go and to let him. Uh, during the night, the scriptures say, uh, while Daniel's asleep, during the night, the mystery of the king's dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Have you ever been um, seized by a vision? Has God ever given you a vision of the way forward, of the meaning of things, of how to solve something that has been bugging you? Maybe it's in an actual dream like Daniel has that the solution comes for you. Or perhaps it's through a sermon that, that somehow makes things really clear for you and, and, and suddenly you understand what is next for you to do. Or maybe it's through a song you're hearing or a prayer that's being offered. Maybe as you're just driving along, boom, the idea, the picture of the pathway comes to you. Or, or you're in the shower and you're scrubbing your hair and all of a sudden that thing that's been bugging you, bang, you know the answer to it. Has that ever happened to you? Sometimes when these things happen to us, we just brush them off. We think, oh, that can't be God speaking to me. That's just a wild notion. Maybe that's the spaghetti sauce from last night. Is it possible that God still speaks to people, gives them visions, helps them with the, the, solve the issues of life? Is that possible? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. God often, if you believe the Scriptures, does that very thing. 
And the most important thing for us to do in, in those particular circumstances is to actively respond to the leading of God. That's Daniel's fifth step here. He actively responds to the leading that God gives him when God tells him what the dream is that, that Nebuchadnezzar has had and tells him to go to Nebuchadnezzar with that answer. And that's a risky proposition given this tempestuous king, right? At a moment when almost every other wise man is trying to get a ticket out of Babylon that night, right, to save themselves, uh, Daniel goes right into the teeth of the lion himself, right into the jaws of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And the scripture says, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. He goes to the executioner, the guy with the black hood and the great big axe. He goes right to Arioch in this moment and said to him, take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. And it's an amazing story. Um, and so Daniel does this and he interprets the dream and we're going to unpack more about what that dream was when we uh, get back together again next week uh, but the big idea I want us to in, to focus on today is that from that one courageous response to God's leading remarkable things cascade amazing things come it leads to the rescue of Daniel and his friends and all of the other wise men of Babylon it, it leads to the release of at least one major source of worry for one of the most powerful men on earth at this time, Nebuchadnezzar. It leads to the elevation of Daniel from just one young talent in the pool of, of, of young executives being trained in Babylon. It leads uh, to Daniel being elevated to become the head of the entire province of Babylon. Um, made, made the head of that whole district in the wider Babylonian empire. And most importantly, it led to the glory of God, the glorification of God. I want to ask you as we head out on our way today, uh, having listened to these two different ways of coming at stress, which is the one that you feel most led to try to pursue in the days to come? Will it be Nebuchadnezzar's approach? Will you toss and turn alone in the night? Will you share your concerns half-heartedly with people you're not really sure you trust? Will you indulge in a little rage or execution therapy when it gets really bad just to vent some steam? Or will your approach be more like Daniel's? If the answer is, I think I'd like it to be a little more like Daniel's, then first, find one person that you do trust uh, who has some seasoning in life and ask them to help you name what's at the core of the worry for you. What is the problem? What's the particular problem that needs solving? This is, of course, what spouses and pastors and parents and Stephen ministers and best friends and bosses in their best light are all for. What an incredible gift we can be to each other, to be the Arioch for, for one another. Uh, so let's remember that calling too. Once you've done that, share your concern with a trusted circle of Christian friends. Uh, and as I said before, if you don't have that trusted circle, uh, talk to some of the staff of the church or others around you. Let's find that, help you forge that kind of a circle. If you don't uh, know where to begin, come by during the week here at Christ Church. Do you know that there are more people that show up at our church building for the ministries during the week than on the weekends? Uh, that, that the Bible studies and the men's and women's ministries actually have more places of belonging and relationship building than, than what happens here on the weekends. Uh, think about finding a group of Christian friends if you don't have that that tight circle. Then thirdly, ask some faithful people to pray about what's going on for you. We offer a ministry of prayer here every single weekend. Uh, there are prayer ministers after the service who would love the chance to pray with you uh, about what's going on in your life. If you uh, want to come find me, I'd be honored to do that. I bet there are people alongside of you who would be happy to pray 
about what's going on. And then once you've done all that is humanly possible, let go. Let God. Trust him to act. Somebody once said to me, when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, turn to the rock and ask him to help you with the hard place. I love that. Right? Turn to the rock and ask him to help you with the hard place. Um, So then finally, act on his leading. Uh, No matter how risky the vision is, if he gives you a vision, take a step of obedience in response to that. And then watch what God does next. And I guess there's one PS. When the problem starts to give way to blessing, as so often the things that stress us most are actually invitations to an action that will lead to greater blessing if we take the steps. When it does that, uh, as every source of stress, stress that we really surrender to God will do, then give glory to God. Will you give the glory to God? Even before you see all of the final results of what you've, uh, of what you've started to do or what God has started to do, give God the glory for this as Daniel does. He says, praise be to the name of God for wisdom and power are his. For the truth is, God deserves the glory. And as Daniel's life shows us in spades, God has this gracious habit of taking somebody who lifts him up and lifting that person up as well. So may it be for you and for me. And may God add his blessing to this exploration of his wonderful word. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you for the witness of your scriptures. We thank you for these amazing stories that plumb the reality of life, of your nature, of the possibilities of faith, as uh, deeply and significantly today as if ever before. So thank you for the lessons of this morning. Help us to apply them, that you might receive the glory, God, and that we might find the blessing that we know is your desire to give. For this we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.